praise the Lord. Well, you may be seated. I'd like to start this morning in Isaiah chapter 53. I've had on my heart um, several weeks, a month or so ago, I guess, the Lord put it on my heart to teach a series on Bible prosperity. There's some things that he wants to do that we need to be prepared for so we can cooperate with him when he does it. Now, we teach a lot on faith. We teach a lot on healing. We have a, a healing school service, Sunday night service, dedicated just for that purpose. And without a doubt, the number one thing that is necessary for people to receive the healing that God has provided for us is to know God's will on the subject. And folks, that's the truth in every area. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Faith in every area begins where the will of God is known. And so my purpose this morning is to try to encourage you, establish you, remind you, or if you haven't heard it before, to teach you what God's will is in the area of prosperity. Now, let me preface my message with saying this as well. I don't agree with the way a lot of people teach prosperity. I firmly believe that prosperity is a subject that should be taught in the local church. But by and large, I believe pastors ought to be the ones doing the teaching of it. Now, the reason for that is because you have a chance to see day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. You have an opportunity to see a pastor and how these truths operate in his life. It's easy for somebody to come in for a short period of time one service or a few services perhaps and get you excited about something through a message that they've had an opportunity to, to, to tweak and polish over a period of time, period of years. But there's no way that you and I would know what somebody's life is without spending time with them. And so for that reason, I firmly believe that prosperity ought to be taught primarily in the local church by the pastor of that local church because you can see then from their lives or from his life what the motivation is for the teaching that he's doing it's real easy to teach sermons on prosperity that are self-serving especially if it's a guest minister and you know there's an offering coming at the end But God has told us some things and shown us some things that establish beyond a shadow of a doubt what his will is in many, many areas, if not every area of life, finances being one of those. So I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 1. Isaiah 53 is the chapter of the Bible that everybody agrees is speaking of the Messiah is identifying what Jesus would do from their perspective, what he would do on, when he came to the earth to be the redeemer of mankind. 
and from our perspective, what he has done. They were looking forward, Isaiah was looking forward to the Messiah. We look back at what he did. So beginning in Isaiah 53, verse 1, the scripture says, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I read over that verse of scripture for a long time, many years, just thinking that it was setting the stage for the important stuff that was a few verses down. But folks, I want you to understand something. There is no wasted words in all of the scripture. And when I began to look at this verse of scripture, the first thing he identifies as a part of or a, pre a prerequisite for the truth that will come in the next several verses is faith. Who has believed our report? This chapter starts off from the beginning, identifying it's not going to do you any good unless you believe the report. But to those that believe the report, the arm of the Lord is revealed. In other words, the power of God to change things in your life, particularly in these certain areas that Jesus came to be our Redeemer. Who has believed thy report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I don't like that scripture. My idea of Jesus was he was the tallest, best-looking guy that anybody could ever be. Yet the Bible says that's not the way it was. The Bible tells us that there was no specific characteristic of Jesus in and of himself that would have been overly attractive for us or to us. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word sorrows is the word um, pain. The word grief is the word sickness and translated that way in other scriptures. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And I was talking about on the cross. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pain. Same words that were used in verse 3. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now that's usually as far as we go when we're talking about Jesus and what he redeemed us from. And we certainly identify from that verse of Scripture that he shed his blood for certain things. First and foremost in verse 5 is he was wounded for our uh, transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The difference between transgressions and iniquities is not found in the wording. The words that are used pretty much mean the same thing, and it's talking about sin. But the Holy Ghost divided sin into two different categories. Now, the two categories, the only two categories that could possibly be meant here is that Jesus died for the original sin, Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, and he died for personal sin. That is wrongdoing on our part. Without him paying the price for Adam's original sin, it wouldn't really matter that he paid the price for your individual sins. 
and without paying the price for your individual sins, it wouldn't matter that he paid the price for original sin because we'd just fall back into sin again and again and again. But he redeemed us from both Adam's original sin and from the sins that we commit ourselves. Then it says, lastly in the verse, with his stripes, meaning the punishment and the blood that was shed through the punishment that he endured, with or by his stripes we are healed. But we don't talk about the middle part very much. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Now, the word chastise here means punish. The punishment of our peace was upon him. This word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. It's recorded 208 times in the Old Testament. And the vast majority, the word means uh, well-being in every area. But the vast majority of those 208 times that it's used in the Old Testament, it's translated peace. But that's not the only way that it's translated. There are scriptures that say he was translated for our, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that the, the word peace is translated welfare, it's translated heal, and it's translated prosperity in a couple of places. Now let's look at one of those places where we find it translated prosperity. It's in Psalm 35, verse 27. It says, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Which has pleasure in the prosperity of his serv servant. Now, the, pros the word prosperity there is the word shalom. So you really have to look at the context of what's being spoken of or what the subject matter is to identify how to rightly translate this word shalom. Now here where it says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Folks, the Bible is telling us that Jesus paid just exactly the same price for sin and sickness and this thing called peace now paul writes about peace in the new testament of course the new testament was written in greek and not in uh, hebrew but in telling us about the work of jesus and the finished work that he accomplished through his death burial and resurrection it says we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ in other words he's saying there that peace belongs to us as a result of what Jesus did. But this is saying something about what Jesus did concerning this peace or this shalom on the cross. Now, Paul talks a lot to us. We see it in uh, the, both the book of Romans and uh, the letters that he wrote to the Corinthian churches. One of the things that he brings out, particularly in those two books or two letters, is this thing called reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is a New Testament term for an Old Testament practice of substitution. In other words, Israel understood that every year on the Day of Atonement when the lamb was sacrificed, that that lamb was a substitute, that the blood of the lamb that was shed was a substitute for their own blood, which was due to pay the penalty for Israel's sins. 
So they understood all throughout the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system was presented in a way so that the Jews understood that there had to be a substitute made, that Adam's sin, which was passed down upon all men, it had to be paid for, and it had to be paid for in blood. So through the sacrificial system that God established, the blood of animals, bulls and goats, would be used as a substitute. But the thing about the Messiah was that a Messiah, a Savior, was promised so that a sacrifice could be made once and for all. And Hebrews chapter 9 tells us exactly that. Jesus, after shedding his blood, entered in once and for all into the heavenly holy of holies to offer his blood an eternal sacrifice. But the blood that he shed was specific. It was for sin. It was for sickness. And Isaiah 53, 5 says it was for poverty as well. Now, if that's true, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. If that's true, we should be able to find at least one more scripture for each sin, sickness, and poverty that identifies that Jesus paid the price for each and every one of those things. Let's go back to Isaiah 53 and keep reading. We ended with verse 5. We'll read it again. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see that? The Lord has laid on them, him the iniquity of us all. It's telling us about Jesus' substitutionary work where sin is concerned. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Here where it says he was cut off from the land of the living, that's a Levitical term. On the day of atonement, there were two sacrifices that were made. Two animals were presented to the high priest. Both had to be examined that there would be no spot or wrinkle or blemish on the, the coats of these animals. And then the lots were cast, pretty much the same as rolling dice, I guess. And one was to be chosen by the roll of the dice, if you will, to be the sacrifice that shed his blood. But the other, just as pure, just as worthy of being a substitute as the other one, this one became the scapegoat. And the Bible gave specific instructions about the scapegoat. It says that the priest, the high priest, would lay his hands on the head of this animal. And he would pronounce every sin, every curse, every evil thing that Israel would have and could have been guilty of committing, sins that they would have committed. Then the Bible says that, the, uh, that God instructed a strong man to carry this goat or lead this goat out into the wilderness. 
Now, the wilderness is where this phrase comes in, cut off from the land of the living, because it was to be taken away, far away from any contact with any human being, into the, uh, cut off from the land of the living. And out there, the, the judgment of God would fall upon this animal. Sometimes it would be from other animals, wild beasts perhaps, that would kill this lamb. Other times it might have been that he stumbled and fell off of a high place. Other times it might have just meant that he starved to death. But the judgment of God passed upon this scapegoat in, as a substitute for Israel. So it's telling us Jesus was not only the sacrificial lamb, but he was also the scapegoat. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. An interesting point here is this word death is plural. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths, plural. Well, we know he died physically on the cross. What other death is there? Spiritual death. As a part of his substitutionary work, as a part of being made sin, as a part of God laying on him the iniquity of us all, he died spiritually. Just as much and just as really as he, as he died physically. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had no, done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. You see that phrase, he has put him to grief? Literally, the Hebrew says God had made him sick. Now, that doesn't mean that he got cancer on the cross. It means he was the substitute. He offered his life, his blood, as a substitute for sickness. But now notice the way that it took place. He has made him sick. He has made him to be sickness, in other words. God made Jesus to be sickness. What that's telling us is that here is the embodiment of the substitutionary work of Jesus. Just as he was made to be sin, and we'll see that in another scripture to confirm what we've already written or read from what is written. But it's telling us that God made him sickness. Just as real as the substitutionary work was on our behalf for sin, so was it for sickness as well. So there's a second witness that we've got. The Bible says God made him sick. God made him to be the sacrifice, the substitutionary lamb, sacrificial lamb for sickness itself. Now turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking about this reconciliation, this exchange that took place. Jesus was made sin so that we could be made alive. And it tells us in verse, 15, uh, verse 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, talking about the substitutionary work of Jesus, this reconciliation. Notice in verse 20, it stops, it ends the, the verse saying, Be ye reconciled to God. For, verse 21, for he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now notice it says God made Jesus to be sin. 
he made Jesus to be sin. You remember in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21, it tells us about Israel in the wilderness because the journey they were on was hard and they were discouraged because of the way that they were going. They spoke against God and spoke against Moses. And the Bible tells us that fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, came into the camp. Now, some people would say that God sent them there. But if you look at some other things that Moses said in Deuteronomy as his, part of his farewell address, he said, remember how the Lord led you through the wilderness where there were poisonous snakes or fiery serpents. They were already there. And so the implication is, as long as they operated according to the commandments of God, there was divine protection for them from the snakes that inhabited the wilderness. Now, again, remember, this is a large group of people, folks. Five to seven million people, according to most estimates, came out of Egypt. Well, during the 40 years that they spent in the wilderness, that number multiplied many-fold. And so there are perhaps tens of millions of people that are in this wandering tribe of Israel. And God protected them from poisonous snakes to the man. There's no record of any entry into the camp of Israel from these poisonous snakes until they began to murmur and complain against God. Now, they knew that they were doing the wrong thing. But when the Bible, then the Bible tells us that the, the fiery serpents killed a lot of people. And so they came and repented to Moses and they said, we've sinned. They didn't say God's after us. They said, we have sinned because we spoke against God and spoke against you. And they asked Moses to entreat the Lord so that they'd be delivered from those serpents. Well, Moses went to God and God said, make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. And everyone that looketh upon it shall live. And he did and they did and they survived. But Jesus talked about in John chapter 3 how that that was a type of him. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. He's talking about his crucifixion. So he identifies with this brass serpent on the pole. Now, why was it a serpent? If it was the type of Jesus, wouldn't it have been a lamb? It would have been except that God understood and he's trying to reveal to us the purpose of Jesus hanging on the cross, the purpose of Jesus giving his life. Here's this substitutionary work, this reconciliation that's taking place. Jesus became sin on the cross. He died spiritually on the cross. He became sick. God made him sick as a part of the work of the cross specifically the beating he took in Pilate's court the day before he was crucified. So God made him to be these things. Now here's why this is important to me. Notice verse 21 again, 2 Corinthians verse five, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 21. For God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Folks, your righteousness is only in the same measure that God made him to be sin. That God made Jesus to be sin. 
See, we read a verse of Scripture in Isaiah 53 where it said God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some people see this, and I did for a long time. Some people look at this and imagine it to be some kind of cloak that God put over on Jesus, but that his nature really didn't change. He may have laid sin and sickness upon Jesus, but Jesus never stops being the Son of God with the same nature that God had, the same righteousness that God had, the same ability that God had. But folks, if that's true, then that means that Jesus bearing your sins and mine, paying the price for your sickness and my sickness, that means that's only temporal. It's not eternal. That means your righteousness is only in the same measure that him being made sin and sickness for us. It has to be the same form. If God made him to be sin, if he made him to be sick, then it means his nature had to change, which means he took upon himself the nature of the serpent, which was typified or illustrated by the serpent of brass on the pole. Now, here's the flip side of that. Here's the positive side of that. If Jesus was really made to be sickness, if he was really made to be sin, if he was really made to be poverty in our place, then that means your righteousness is not only eternal, but your purity as a result of that righteousness brings you into a place where you truly are a joint heir with Christ of all the things that God has made available to us through the work of Jesus. Now, that's the kind of righteousness we have that I think most of the church fails to recognize. Okay, so what have we seen? We've seen that God made Jesus to be sick as a part of the substitutionary work of God. He paid the price, in other words, for sickness and disease, which means if he paid the price, we shouldn't have to and don't have to. God made him to be sin for our sakes. Not because Jesus had any personal relationship with sin or had committed any sin in his life. He didn't but so that the reconciliation, the exchange could be made that results in eternal life because the law of sin and death was paid for. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If Jesus truly did take upon himself the penalty for poverty, then we've got to find another scripture. We've already got one witness that's Isaiah 53. But we've got to find another witness that he paid the price for poverty too. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Now, folks, we've got some questions to answer about this. First of all, how was Jesus made poor? Some people would say that he came to, from heaven to the earth, and that in and of itself is such a change and such a step down that that's how he became poor. But Jesus was never hindered by the lack of resources here on the earth. The Bible tells us that Jesus had a treasurer 
Judas Iscariot was the one that held the bag. Well, you don't need a treasurer unless you have some money. If there's no treasurer to administrate, why do you need a treasurer? And not only that, but the Bible says that when Judas went out from the Last Supper, after Jesus had given him the, the bread that he stopped in the wine, which signified the choice morsel of the meal, it says the other disciples, when they saw him leave, Jesus had just told him, what you're going to do, do quickly. He identified to Judas that he was the one that was going to betray him. And when he left the room where they were having the Passover feast, John tells us that the disciples just assumed that he was going to, to give to the poor because he had been in conference with Jesus. Apparently, the things that Jesus told him were in whispers because none of the others heard or knew what was going on. But let me ask you a question. If you get up and leave a room, do people assume that you've gone to give to the poor? To make that assumption, somebody has to be operating in that manner in a pretty consistent basis or on a pretty consistent basis, wouldn't you think? Furthermore, the Bible tells us that there were women, some even the wives of men in high places, that gave to him while he was here on the earth. You remember in Luke chapter 10, after Jesus had sent out the seven, or after Jesus had sent out the twelve, to go into cities before him two by two. It says that he commissioned the 70 to go out and do the same thing. Well, where did these 70 come from? He didn't have to go scrounge up 70 people. See, most Bible scholars agree that Jesus had a group of 70 plus people, maybe as many as 120, that followed him around, that he was responsible for their care. He was responsible for feeding them and so forth. Well, that would certainly fit the story of the 70 because he didn't have to go looking for them. They were right there, ready to be dispatched, which they were. So if Jesus is taking care of a group of people like that on a consistent basis, there had to be some kind of funds and resources available to them to buy food and provide for them while they were on, their, on the road in ministry. Furthermore, the Bible tells us or shows us that Joseph, the husband of Mary, Jesus' mother, went off the scene somewhere before Jesus started his earthly ministry. Well, that would make Jesus the eldest son. He had other brothers and sisters. He had four brothers and two sisters, at least two sisters, maybe more. It just says that there, it tells us about the four people who were Jesus' brothers and the people in Nazareth said, and aren't his sisters here with us as well? Well, sisters would imply two at least. So Jesus had at least six brothers and sisters. And he would have been responsible for taking care of their mother. We know that he was because when he hung on the cross, one of the last things that he said to John, who was standing there with Mary, he said, John, behold your mother. Mary, behold your son. In other words, Jesus, being a good son, delegated the care of his mother to John the Baptist. I'm sorry, not John the Baptist, John the brother of James. 
one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Well, how could Jesus provide for his mother if he didn't have a home? See, a lot of people look at one of the things Jesus said in commissioning somebody to become his disciple. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, that just means when he's away from home, he doesn't have a place to stay. The Bible tells us that the story of the one man that was crippled being carried by four, they couldn't get into the house where Jesus was sitting. This is Luke's account. Luke says it was his house. So they went up onto the roof and tore up the roof and let him down with ropes. You remember the story? Luke tells us that was his house. Well, we know he had to have a house if he's taking care of his mother. Now, if he wasn't taking care of his mother sufficiently, that would have been sin because that was part of what was required of, sibling, of uh, children in the absence of one of their parents. So he had to have a place to live. He had to have something worthwhile, some form of resources that was worthwhile and sufficient to take care of the people that were under his charge. And his mother would fall at the head of that list. And furthermore, the Bible says that when Jesus was crucified, the Roman soldiers rolled dice for his clothes. Now, folks, if Jesus was some homeless guy living under a bridge, who's going to want his clothes? But the Bible says that because it, it had, was made out of one piece of material and didn't have seams, it was the finest thing that you could ever have. Jesus had a custom tailor, apparently, at least for this one garment. And the Roman soldiers recognized the value of that garment, and that's what they rolled dice. That's what they gambled for. Jesus couldn't have been some homeless guy under a bridge. Nobody's going to want those clothes except to burn and get rid of. So if we look at those things in context, how can we say that Jesus was poor when he was here on the earth? Doesn't fit. But if Isaiah 53, 5 means what it says, and the chastisement of our poverty was upon him, then that would mean on the cross, at the same time that Jesus was made to be sick, at the same time that God made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, he was made to be poor or made to be impoverished so that we, through his poverty, the substitutionary work on the cross, might be made rich. Can you see that? Now, tell me anything else that fits. I know everybody doesn't agree with that. But tell me what else fits. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that prosperity and abundance was part of the deal that he, God made with Abraham. But going back even further than that, we see that God's plan for man, and remember God never changes, he said himself, I am God, I change not. So the fall of man didn't change God. God was the same before Adam sinned as he was after Adam sinned. And when God made the earth, 
he made everything to be producing for the purpose of his man, Adam. Genesis 1.26 says that when God had made everything, the last thing he saved for his creative works, the greatest part of the, or the greatest work of creation was that he made, made man to have dominion over the works of his hands. Think about what that means, folks. He made a world with all of the resources that we know of today, and the world will never run out of resources. God made it so that it wouldn't. But God created the, the earth in such a way as to serve man. That means there were more trees than Adam could eat of. There was more grass than he could wear, walk barefoot through. There was more water than he could ever drink. God made a paradise of abundance and then said to man, this is yours. Folks, imagine if Adam hadn't sinned. If Adam had not sinned, if there had never been any original sin, what would the world look like? Well, there wouldn't be any civil government. No laws to make. No point in telling somebody thou shalt not uh, steal because there's no sin to influence or to overcome somebody to make them steal. Everybody would be supplied for. Everybody would be provided for. No limit to the earth's resources. Nobody trying to dominate other people. See, there's a, according to Genesis 126, there's a God-given desire in man to, be, to have dominion. There's a God-given desire, in that, and I want to say it that way again specifically. There's a God-given desire for man to dominate the earth. But because of sin, that desire to dominate has turned into a, a desire to dominate other people. And that's never been God's plan. All the sins of society are a result of man trying to dominate others. All the laws that we have on the books, whether they're good ones or bad ones, were created because of man's perverted desire to have dominion not over the earth, but over human beings. There would be none of that without original sin. There wouldn't be anybody trying to get ahead of somebody else because everybody would have enough. There wouldn't be any Forbes ranking of the most, the richest people in the world because nobody would care. Mankind worldwide would recognize that the resources of the earth are to provide for man, not to be used as a weapon against others. I believe that's the reason that Jesus, when he was tempted of the devil after 40 days of fasting, when the devil showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, he said, I'll give you the, the dominion over all these things if you'll worship me. 
Well, there's no question. If you look at the history of mankind, if you look at the governments of mankind, even our own, and it's getting more and more so this, this way in these last days, you can see the devil's work in government as much or maybe more than any other area or aspect of life. None of that would be there except for original sin. Now, some people will hear things like that, and, and, and some have. They've looked at some of the things that the early church did, how they had all things in common. And some people have surmised that God's plan for government should be communism, or if not communism, at least socialism. And folks, socialism is just communism light. But they fail to take into account young people that are taught these ideals of a socialist society or a communist society that takes care of everybody, that keeps anybody from going over the head of somebody else supposedly. They fail to take into account that sin is always going to lead to the dominion of people. Jesus said so. Jesus said the Gentiles seek to rule over others. But that's not the kind of plan that God had for government. And when sin and sickness, when Satan is finally done away with once and for all, there's no government then other than us looking directly to God the Father. So God's original intent for man was to provide him with an earth that had more resources than he could ever tap into. That hadn't changed. God's desire for Adam to be fully supplied and fully provided for and that provision and supply that was passed down to his children, ideally without the presence of sin, but in reality, fulfills the Scripture that we just saw in Psalm 35, verse 27, about the Lord delights in the prosperity of his servants. God doesn't have a problem with us being rich. Now, because of sin and the presence of sin in the world, a lot of people will see that scripture and think that it's got to be talking about something other than the way it's translated. But it's an accurate translation. We see the same thing taking place when God came back in on the scene and appeared to Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1, Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I want you to read that again with me. I want you to see what the promise that God made to Abraham was about. It was threefold. First of all, he says, I'll make of thee a great nation. He's talking about children, sons, descendants. Secondly, he said, I will bless thee and make thy name great. He's talking about material resources. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich. 
and he adds no sorrow to it. Finally, the last thing he said, he gave him a purpose for being blessed, a purpose for his riches, and thou shalt be a blessing. Folks, prosperity without a purpose is greed. God not only gave Abraham the promise of material wealth, but shared with him his desire, his intent that Abraham should use it to bless others. Well, if you don't have enough to take care of yourself, you sure can't be a blessing to others, can you? Well, what happened? Turn to chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1, it said, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot was with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Abraham was very rich. This is before God changed his name. Abram was very rich in silver, and in cattle, and in gold. Now, if we follow the, the, uh, the life of Abraham, we come to the place just in the next chapter where Lot and Abraham have to part ways. Now, the reason they had to part ways is because they had both increased to such a degree. Their wealth, their flocks, their herds, their cattle, as well as their silver and gold had increased to such a measure that their servants began fighting with each other. It became more difficult for them as a traveling caravan, the nomadic group that they were, to find enough pasture for everybody's flocks. And so they started fighting over the choice places for their flocks to feed. So Abraham came to Lot and said, it's not right that our servants should be fighting each other. We've become too great for the land. He said, you choose which way you want to go and I'll take whatever's left. Last summer, I used to have a, a sermon on a man of faith takes what's left. Now, folks, if Lot had known like he should have known that the blessing of God on Abram was what made him rich, then the last thing he would have ever done was separate himself from his uncle. But he did. And he wound up going into the plains where the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were. We know that area to be now the, the borderline lands of the uh, Dead Sea. But at that time, it was a valley of plains. It was a rich valley. And so Abraham went the other way. Now, over a course of time, the Bible says that there were Wars and warring people that came against the king of Sodom and defeated Sodom's army and took captive all the people and all the stuff that carried it away from the city. When Abraham heard of it, Lot and his family and his possessions were part of what was taken as well. Abraham enlisted all the servants of fighting age from his people 
and it turned out to be in excess of 300. Now, folks, how big would he have to be? How big would his descendants and his caravan have to be to have 300 servants? We're not just talking about a housekeeper once a week. He had to be a huge group of people. Well, his servants came out during the nighttime, carried out a guerrilla raid against the enemies of Sodom, the ones that had overthrown them, and took back all the stuff. He freed Lot and all the servants in Lot's house that were taken as well, along with the goods and the possessions. Now, I don't want to get involved in the whole story. It tells us about Melchizedek and some of the things that were surrounding that. We'll get to that a little later in the series. But when the king of Sodom was delivered, he came to Abraham and said, you take all the goods and give me back the people. He's offering Abraham the spoils of his own city. as a reward for what he did in freeing the people. But I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 14. Well, I'll start in verse 21. It'll recap what I just said. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the, to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. That means a shoestring. And that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abraham rich. Abraham knew that his wealth, his increase, his well-being was at the hand of God. The blessing of the Lord truly had made him rich. And he added no sorrow to it. Now, if we fast forward a little bit more, we've got Abraham's witness that God was the one that made him rich. If we fast forward a little bit more to Genesis chapter 24, we find that Isaac had been born and the most trusted servant in Abraham's house was sent to the land that he came from, not the land of Canaan that God sent him to, the promised land that God sent him to but back to the land that he came from to find a wife for his son. And the servant came upon and found through supernatural things that took place, found who he believed would be the right, right person. And so he's sitting down with her family and explaining to her parents who his master was and what the conditions were and so forth. We won't go through the whole thing, but Genesis chapter 24, verse 35, here's part of what he said. This is the servant speaking of Abraham and his household. And the Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and camels and asses. So the servant knew that it was the blessing of the Lord that had made Abraham rich. Now, we don't see anything about Abraham trying to dominate other people. In fact, he seems to be operating his life 
in such a way as I'll take what's left, God's still with me, and we'll make something good out of it. But just as the Scripture says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, I want you to see that God wanted to make Abraham rich. I want you to understand that God intended to make Abraham rich. Now, when God first appeared to him in chapter 12 of Genesis, how could God talk to somebody that knew nothing about spiritual things? How could he talk to him about spiritual benefits? He couldn't. What is Abraham going to know about spiritual things? First time God appears to him, he doesn't even know who he's talking to. God has to identify himself. And so what does he do? He talks to him about material things. God promises Abraham, I'll give you children and make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make you rich and make your name great. That speaks to the wealth that he intends for Abraham. And then again, as we said earlier, he gives him purpose and he says, and thou shalt be a blessing. So we see from what God told Abram the first time that he appeared to him that God wanted to make a great nation of him, that God wanted to make him wealthy, and he wanted him to have a purpose for his wealth, which is to help and bless others as well. Now what of that has changed over the years? God doesn't change. God never changes. And if we fast forward even further, we see that when Moses became the deliverer of Israel, he brings them out of Egypt. He tells them about the good land, the promised land, and he goes into great detail in telling them about the land that flows with milk and honey. But you remember the story in Numbers chapter 13 where Israel fails to step out in faith to take hold of the land and take possession of it. So they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And at the end of those 40 years, Moses, knowing he's not going to be the one that leads them into the promised land, begins to give them information about the promised land. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I know you know these things, or I hope you know these things, but it's good to be reminded. I'm going to give you the, uh, the abbreviated version for the sake of time, starting in verse uh, 7, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks and of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and are out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord God for the good land which he has given thee. Now, folks, if this was God's purpose or plan or will for Israel, it's got to be the same plan and will for his people today. He cannot change. He said himself, I do not change. I'm God. I change not. So if this is what he wanted for Israel... And he's no respecter of persons. Then how much more does he want it for us? Yeah, some say, but this was for Israel. This was just a promise for the Jews. 
Well, the Bible says if you're Christ, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 29, if you're Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That means these things that Moses is telling Israel about the promised land, that's your promised land too. For them, it was a geographic boundary that encompassed the land that God wanted them to have. For us, it's wherever God plants you. But wherever he plants you, this is the result that he wants to come forth in your life. Otherwise, the Bible's a lie. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thy heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee, out, brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. Now stop right there for me uh, just a moment. We'll go back and read a little bit further. Why in the world is Moses warning the people of Israel to not forget that it was God that did good things for them? Why is he giving them that warning? Folks, if these things were not going to happen in their lives and for their benefits, there's nothing to warn them about. There's no need for a warning. But the promise of God was so absolute. The blessing of Abraham, and that's what this does. It codifies. The law of Moses codifies for Israel what Abraham's blessing has always been and always will be. It can't change because God can't change, and he's, uh, God is still Abraham's covenant partner. And if you're Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise? He's your covenant partner too. These promises are absolute. Moses is saying this is what's going to happen when you go in to take the promised land. The very act of taking the promised land under Joseph, uh, or under um, Joshua, under his leadership, sets these things in motion. And God knows, and Moses knows, what will be the result of these things, these principles, these blessings of God that are set in motion by them taking hold of the promised land. If they weren't absolute, there's no warning to give. Or at least it wouldn't be modified. Moses would say, now the ones of you that will prosper, here's a warning unto you. But he says it for everybody. Folks, if this is not God's will, what's it doing in here? If it's not God's will, what's Moses doing telling them about it in the first place? So he says again, here's the warning in verse 12, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, God must not have a problem with that. He didn't say when those of you turn an evil eye toward the Lord and build goodly houses. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. 
Your flocks and your herds are going to increase. Your silver and gold will be multiplied. Everything that you have will multiply. And because of that, keep this in mind. Don't forget the Lord thy God. Then thy heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions. We talked about that. And drought, and where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou shalt say in, mine heart, in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Point of clarification. If this wealth, if these riches, this multiplication of flocks and herds and silver and gold and all that they have, if this multiplication was going to come to them in one fell swoop, then they would never have any, any way, any reason, any valid reason to ever assume or to ever surmise that something they did made this happen. But if the blessing of God is to prosper whatever you put your hand to, and the blessing of the Lord brings supernatural increase over a period of time, rather than, as I said, in one fell swoop, then there's opportunity for Israel to look around and see how they've grown and see how they've increased and see how what they have is multiplied and think, you know, I'm pretty good at handling money. I've been pretty successful in life in making these good things happen. And thence, and for this reason, that's why the warning was given. Now let's keep reading. Verse 18, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. I want you to see that the Bible is stating something emphatically, absolutely, definitively. God gives you power to get wealth. Now, people can argue and criticize and complain all they want to, but the Bible says without a shadow of a doubt that God gives his people the power to get wealth. Joshua found out what the power to get wealth is. God told him in chapter 1 and verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. What is the power to get wealth? Faith in God's word. Now, I'm sure some of you were looking for something a little bit more dramatic than that because we talk about faith in God's Word in every area for healing, for well-being in every area and so forth. Faith for salvation, faith for finances, faith for healing. It all comes the same way. And that is by hearing what God's will is 
believing what he said and taking possession of it with faith. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth. Notice the next phrase, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. The power to get wealth is a part of God's provision, spiritual provision for us. The power to get wealth is spiritual. It's not natural. It's not a natural understanding or, or intelligence where handling money and finances and investments are concerned. I realize some people are gifted in that area, and that's great, but that's not this. The power to get wealth is necessary for God to establish his covenant. Why? Because we saw clearly, again definitively, that God's promise to Abraham was material well-being with the purpose of being a blessing to others. And here, where it says that last phrase, as it is this day, that may be the most important part of the verse. Because it's God saying through Moses to the children of Israel, the promise is just as real, it's just as new, it's just as absolute for you today as it was when God first appeared to Abraham and made the original promise that we have recorded in Genesis 12. Now, folks, the Bible says that Israel was God's servants. We're his sons and daughters. We're his children. If it was true for them, how much more is it true for us? When I went to Bible school, God had to do some financial miracles to get me from Birmingham, Alabama to, to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma to enroll in school. I was going to class, finished my first year. Summer came around and had the opportunity to work with Brother Hagen on the crusade team or in his crusades. Before we left on the summer tour, I was praying one morning, and the Lord spoke three words to me. He said, seek my face. And that's all he said. Well, what does that mean? I didn't know especially at the point that I was at at that time in my life. I had no idea what it was. Now, folks, this was before cell phones, before smartphones, before Bible apps. And so when we started off on that summer tour, we were going to be gone about three weeks. No, it was longer than that. It would have been about six weeks. Anyway, when we left, the only thing I knew to do was to do a word study. So I packed up my Strong's Concordance. You remember how big those books used to be? Man, that thing felt like the Ark of the Covenant to me. So I loaded that up, and we were traveling by bus to the northeastern part of the country, so we had a lot of time to kill or for me to study during that period of time. 
So I went and I looked up the word seek. Now, the strongest concordance didn't tell you how many times it was there in the scripture. It just gave you a whole long list of them. So I had to count them up. And I found out that the word seek was in the Bible 233 times. So I started reading through there. I'd take my Bible and open right next to where the strongest concordance was. And I'd start with the list, read the verse of Scripture, go to the next one in the list, read that verse of Scripture. And folks, it took forever, hours. And there was rarely a time it was unusual for me to be able to get through it in just one sitting. So I'd have to make notes and put little marks in the strongest concordance to pick up where I left off and all that kind of stuff. And it was, quite frankly, one of the most boring things I ever did in my life. And because it was boring, because there was no light from heaven that shined round about any of these scriptures or upon me or whatever I might have ex expected to happen, I don't know. I started talking to God about it, asking him, am I doing the right thing? He didn't say anything. Well, I didn't know what else to do, so I kept doing what I was doing. I had no other idea than the one that I was using and acting on. So I went through that. I found some interesting things there. I found out David said, I'll, I'll wake early in the morning and seek your face. I found other good things. But really, to be honest with you, there's only one verse of Scripture out of the whole list that still sticks with me. And I'll explain it to you as we go. So I'm talking to God constantly. I got to the place where I realized I could not lug around the strongest concordance. So I started writing out the scriptures. I went through legal pad after legal pad after legal pad. But at least it was easier to carry the legal pads with the scriptures written down on them than it was that strongest concordance. And that didn't seem to be making a difference either. So I'm talking to God about it more. Every day, Lord, is there something else I'm supposed to be doing? Is this the right thing? If it is the right thing, it sure doesn't feel like it. But I had no other idea what to do. So we finished that uh, crusade, the period of time that we left. We came back at the end of July. Well, actually, we came back in the early part of July to get ready for camp meeting which was the last week of July. Between the time that we got back from the crusade and camp meeting starting, Beth and I got married. And a couple of months later, school starts. I'm still doing the same thing that I've been doing with the strongest concordance and the phrase, seek my face. Still not satisfied, still aware of the fact that something doesn't seem right. And so I was walking up the, the steps during that period of time. Some things had happened where the adjustment of salaries was concerned. Brother Hagen was hardly ever involved in the administration part of the ministry by the time that I got to school. Before that, he had been very involved, but his son, Ken Jr., was involved in, in heading up the ministry. 
And Brother Hagin had, over the course of several years, chosen certain people to be a part of the singing group. It was called Faith's Creation. The, the Raymond Singers in band now, I think. But Beth was part of that group. And she and some of the others that had stayed on, the, the singing group had disbanded. But some of the people were there in charge of or helping with the, the ministry, aspects of the ministry. Beth was uh, in charge of the prayer school. There were others that were working with healing school and so forth. And when Brother Hagen hired me after the summer campaign, I thought it was just going to be a that one crusade trip that we took. But he came to me one day and said, you want to work full time? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So he said, all right. He said, we'll pay you what we do the singers, which was $800 a month, $200 a week. Well, that's what Beth had been making. Well, it's not that much. We were making $800 a week. I thought help meets were supposed to help. She was making $800 a month and so was I. I don't care what she's deluded into thinking. But anyway. She got a raise. I don't remember what she got a raise to. But I was making the same thing. Brother Hagen had brought me on at the same rate. And so I was making $800 a month. That's not net. That's gross. I, I have no idea what we brought home. I'm sure she'll fill us in. <laughs> but there was a period of time there that after the singers had gotten their raise, nobody wanted to touch my salary because brother Hagen had done it nobody wanted to go ask him did you do this for a reason is there some special thing that's going on and so for a period of time there I was the single most underpaid employee lowest paid employee at Kenneth Hagen Ministries and to be honest with you folks I didn't care I was doing what I was supposed to do I was as happy as a clam so School started in the fall of, school started again in the fall of 81. And I was walking up the back stairway to the second floor where my office was, where the Crusade Department offices were. And I was in mid-step up a pretty steep flight of stairs. And I had been talking to the Lord. I was talking to him when I got on the stairs, at the bottom of the stairs. I was talking to him about, Lord, I'm still on that seek thy face. But what do I do? I've been doing it again and again and again. Doesn't seem to be making a difference. Is there something else I'm supposed to do? And halfway up those stairs, God dropped a scripture in my heart. I'm in mid-stride, walking up the stairs, and God dropped Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 in my heart. Now, if you don't know what it says, here it is. It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
And in a flash, in a moment of time quicker than a second, I realized that I qualified for that verse and I'd never thought about it. I'd read it every day for months, but I never saw it in the way that he showed it to me. And I said, halfway up the stairs, I said, Lord, that's why you had me seek your face, to put me in position to be rewarded by you. And it's like heaven opened unto me. It's like the lights shined. It's like the birds started singing. It's like everything was right with the world. So before I got to the top of the stairs, I said, I thank you, Father, for rewarding me for seeking your face. And within two weeks, they had more than doubled my salary through a series of supernatural events. I went from making $800 a month, which is $9,600 a year, to making $20,000 a year. And folks, I thought that was all the money in the world. Now, here's what I want you to see from this story. God could very easily have just dropped in my heart where I would find a lost diamond ring or something. It wasn't just about the money. For God to reward me, for God to bring increase into my life, which frankly at that point I wasn't real sure he wanted to. I didn't know a lot of things that I know. I didn't have the experience that I have now. But in order for God to reward me, he had to give me the instruction of what to do, which was seek his face. And then he had to open my eyes to the benefits of seeking his face so that he could bring increase in my life according to his word. I think so much of the church world is, trying to, is praying, asking God to do things apart from his word. People are trying to get healed by, by some special manifestation of the Holy Ghost. But the Bible says God sent his word and healed us. And a lot of people are trying to resist God's word's way of bringing life and benefit to our lives by trying to get him to do something spectacular when 99.999% of the time he does it through his word. When I look back at that experience I had, what warms my heart is to know that God wanted it for me before I knew how to get it. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, in the New English, uh, in the New International Version, says something like this. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. God said that to people that, were, that had been taken captive because of their disobedience to God that had been dominated and held in bondage by another group of people. And even in prison, the prison of their lives being captive, taken captive, God still wanted to prosper them. Folks, when Abraham went into Egypt, God prospered him and brought him forth with great wealth. But when Isaac tried to go to Egypt, God said, stay where you are. And God gave him a hundredfold results in the middle of a famine. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It only matters that we know what his will is 
and recognize that the power to get wealth that he supplied and provided for us is simply to believe his word. I'm looking forward to this series on prosperity, folks. I'm, I'm as excited about this as I have been anything in a long, long time. There's good things that he wants to do for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you do plan to prosper us. And you've given us the instructions of prosperity. To meditate in your word. Put it into our hearts. Say it from our mouths. And look for you to bring increase according to your plan and your purpose. Father, we thank you that Jesus not only took our sins, he was made sick for us that we might walk in divine health and that he took poverty upon him. He shed his blood as a deliverance from poverty just as much as he did for sin and sickness. Holy Spirit, we ask you to take these words that were spoken today and quicken them to our hearts. Quicken us, Lord, according to your word. Quicken us according to your judgments. Quicken us according to your faithfulness. Open our eyes to the truth. Show us what to do and how to do it. That we might walk in the abundance that Jesus' substitutionary work has made available for us. So that we might be able to be a blessing beyond any measure that we've ever seen or known before. In Jesus' precious name. And if you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand. Don't forget the schedule's a little different today. We're not having prayer school at 5, but we'll be having a prayer and praise service at 6. Come join us, and we'll worship God together. Have a great day, folks. We'll see you then.